0: chapter eleven of the condition of the working class in england in eighteen forty four this lib recording is in the public domain the condition of the working class in england in eighteen forty four by friedrich engels chapter eleven the attitude of the bourgeoisie towards the proletariat in speaking of the bourgeoisie i include the so-called aristocracy for this is a privileged class an aristocracy only in contrast with the bourgeoisie not in contrast with the proletariat the proletarian sees in both only the property holder that is the bourgeois before the privilege of property all other privileges vanish the sole difference is this that the bourgeois proper stands in active relations with the manufacturing and in a measure with the mining proletarians and as farmer with the agricultural laborers whereas the so-called aristocrat comes into contact with the agricultural laborer only i have never seen a class so deeply demoralized so incurably debased by selfishness so corroded within so incapable of progress as the english bourgeoisie and i mean by this especially the bourgeoisie proper particularly the liberal corn-law repealing bourgeoisie for it nothing exists in this world except for the sake of money itself not excluded it knows no bliss save that of rapid gain no pain save that of losing gold in the presence of this avarice and lust of gain it is not possible for a single human sentiment or opinion to remain untainted true these english bourgeois are good husbands and family men and of all sorts of other private virtues and appear in ordinary intercourse as decent and respectable as all other bourgeois even in business they are better to deal with than the germans they do not higgle and haggle so much as our own pettifogging merchants but how does this help matters ultimately it is self-interest and especially money-gain which alone determines them i once went into manchester with such a bourgeois and spoke to him of the bad unwholesome method of building the frightful condition of the working people's quarters and asserted that i had never seen so ill-built a city the man listened quietly to the end and said at the corner where we parted quote, and yet there is a great deal of money made here good morning sir End quote. it is utterly indifferent to the english bourgeois whether his workingmen starve or not if only he makes money all the conditions of life are measured by money and what brings no money is nonsense unpractical idealistic bosh hence political economy the science of wealth is the favorite study of these bartering jews every one of them is a political economist the relation of the manufacturer to his operatives has nothing human in it it is purely economic the manufacturer is capital the operative labor and if the operative will not be forced into this abstraction if he insists that he is not labor but a man who possesses among other things the attribute of labor force if he takes it into his head that he need not allow himself to be sold and bought in the market, as the commodity labor, the bourgeois reason comes to a standstill. He cannot comprehend that he holds any other relation to the operatives than that of purchase and sale. He sees in them not human beings, but hands, as he constantly calls them to their faces. He insists, as Carlyle says, that, quote, cash payment is the only nexus between man and man, end quote. Even the relation between himself and his wife is, in 99 cases out of a 100, mere cash payment. Money determines the worth of the man. He is, quote, worth 10,000 pounds, quote. He who has money is of, quote, the better sort of people, end quote, is influential, and what he does counts for something in his social circle. The huckstering spirit penetrates the whole language. All relations are expressed in business terms, in economic categories. Supply and demand are the formulas according to which the logic of the English bourgeois judges all human life. Hence free competition in every respect. Hence the regime of laissez-faire, laissez-aller, in government, in medicine, in education, and soon to be in religion, too, as the state church collapses more and more. Free competition will suffer no limitation, no state supervision. The whole state is but a burden to it it would reach its highest perfection in a wholly ungoverned anarchic society where each might exploit the other to his heart's content since however the bourgeoisie cannot dispense with government but must have it to hold the equally indispensable proletariat in check it turns the power of government against the proletariat and keeps out of its way as far as possible let no one believe however that the cultivated englishman openly brags with his egotism on the contrary he conceals it under the vilest hypocrisy what the wealthy english fail to remember the poor they who have founded philanthropic institutions such as no other country can boast of philanthropic institutions forsooth as though you rendered the proletarians a service in first sucking out their very life-blood and then practising your self-complacent pharisaic philanthropy upon them placing yourselves before the world as mighty benefactors of humanity when you give back to the plundered victims the hundredth part of what belongs to them charity which degrades him who gives more than him who takes charity which treads the downtrodden still deeper in the dust which demands that the degraded the pariah cast out by society shall first surrender the last that remains to him his very claim to manhood shall first beg for mercy before your mercy deigns to press in the shape of an alms the brand of degradation upon his brow but let us hear the english bourgeoisie's own words it is not yet a year since i read in the manchester guardian the following letter to the editor which was published without comment as a perfectly natural reasonable thing mr editor for some time past our main streets are haunted by swarms of beggars who tried to awaken the pity of the passers-by, in a most shameless and annoying manner, by exposing their tattered clothing, sickly aspect, and disgusting wounds and deformities. I should think that when one not only pays the poor rate, but also contributes largely to the charitable institutions, one had done enough to earn a right to be spared such disagreeable and impertinent molestations. And why else do we pay such high rates for the maintenance of the municipal police, if they do not even protect us so far as to make it possible to go to or out of town in peace i hope the publication of these lines in your widely circulated paper may induce the authorities to remove this nuisance and i remain your obedient servant a lady there you have it the english bourgeoisie is charitable out of self-interest it gives nothing outright but regards its gifts as a business matter makes a bargain with the poor, saying, quote, If I spend this much upon benevolent institutions, I thereby purchase the right not to be troubled any further, and you are bound thereby to stay in your dusky holes, and not to irritate my tender nerves by exposing your misery. You shall despair as before, but you shall despair unseen. This I require, this I purchase with my subscription of twenty pounds for the infirmary, End quote it is infamous this charity of a christian bourgeois and so writes a lady she does well to sign herself such well that she has lost the courage to call herself a woman but if the ladies are such as this what must the gentleman be it will be said that this is a single case but no the foregoing letter expresses the temper of the great majority of the english bourgeoisie or the editor would not have accepted it and some reply would have been made to it which i watched for in vain in the succeeding numbers and as to the efficiency of this philanthropy canon parkinson himself says that the poor are relieved much more by the poor than by the bourgeoisie and such relief given by an honest proletarian who knows himself what it is to be hungry for whom sharing his scanty meal is really a sacrifice but a sacrifice born with pleasure such help has a wholly different ring to it from the carelessly tossed alms of the luxurious bourgeois. In other respects, too, the bourgeoisie assumes a hypocritical, boundless philanthropy, but only when its own interests require it, as in its politics and political economy. It has been at work now well on towards five years to prove to the working-men that it strives to abolish the corn laws solely in their interest but the long and short of the matter is this. The corn laws keep the price of bread higher than in other countries, and thus raise wages, but these high wages render difficult competition of the manufacturers against other nations in which bread, and consequently wages, are cheaper. The corn laws being repealed, the price of bread falls, and wages gradually approach those of other European countries, as must be clear to everyone from our previous exposition of the principles according to which wages are determined the manufacturer can compete more readily the demand for english goods increases and with it the demand for labour in consequence of this increased demand wages would actually rise somewhat and the unemployed workers be re-employed but for how long the surplus population of england and especially of ireland is sufficient to supply English manufacture with the necessary operatives, even if it were doubled, and in a few years the small advantage of the repeal of the Corn Laws would be balanced, a new crisis would follow, and we should be back at the point from which we started, while the first stimulus to manufacture would have increased population, meanwhile. All this the proletarians understand very well, and have told the manufacturers to their faces, but in spite of that, The manufacturers have in view solely the immediate advantage which the Corn Laws would bring them. They are too narrow-minded to see that, even for themselves, no permanent advantage can arise from this measure, because their competition with each other would soon force the profit of the individual back to its old level. And thus they continue to shriek to the working-men that it is purely for the sake of the starving millions that the rich members of the Liberal Party— pour hundreds and thousands of pounds into the treasury of the anti corn law league while every one knows that they are only sending the butter after the cheese that they calculate upon earning it all back in the first ten years after the repeal of the corn laws but the workers are no longer to be misled by the bourgeoisie especially since the insurrection of eighteen forty two They demand of every one who presents himself as interested in their welfare that he should declare himself in favor of the people's charter as proof of the sincerity of his professions, and in so doing they protest against all outside help, for the charter is a demand for the power to help themselves. Whoever declines so to declare himself, they pronounce their enemy, and are perfectly right in so doing, whether he be a declared foe or a false friend. Besides, the Anti-Corn Law League has used the most despicable falsehoods and tricks to win the support of the workers. It has tried to prove to them that the money price of labor is in inverse proportion to the price of corn, that wages are high when grain is cheap, and vice versa, an assertion which it pretends to prove with the most ridiculous arguments, and one which is in itself more ridiculous than any other that has proceeded from the mouth of an economist when this failed to help matters the workers were promised bliss supreme in consequence of the increased demand in the labour market indeed men went so far as to carry through the streets two models of loaves of breads on one of which by far the larger was written quote, American eightpenny loaf wages four shillings per day end quote. and upon the much smaller one quote, English eightpenny loaf wages two shillings a day end quote but the workers have not allowed themselves to be misled. They know their lords and masters too well. But rightly to measure the hypocrisy of these promises, the practice of the bourgeoisie must be taken into account. We have seen in the course of our report how the bourgeoisie exploits the proletariat in every conceivable way for its own benefit. We have, however, hitherto seen only how the single bourgeois maltreats the proletariat upon his own account let us turn now to the manner in which the bourgeoisie as a party as the power of the state conducts itself towards the proletariat laws are necessary only because there are persons in existence who own nothing and although this is directly expressed in but few laws as for instance those against vagabonds and tramps in which the proletariat as such is outlawed yet enmity to the proletariat is so emphatically the basis of the law that the judges and especially the justices of the peace who are bourgeois themselves and with whom the proletariat comes most in contact find this meaning in the laws without further consideration if a rich man is brought up or rather summoned to appear before the court the judge regrets that he is obliged to impose so much trouble treats the matter as favourably as possible and if he is forced to condemn the accused does so with extreme regret etc etc and the end of it all is a miserable fine which the bourgeois throws upon the table with contempt and then departs. But if a poor devil gets into such a position as involves appearing before the justice of the peace, he has almost always spent the night in the station-house with a crowd of his peers. He is regarded from the beginning as guilty. his defence is set aside with a contemptuous, quote, "Oh, we know the excuse." End quote and a fine imposed which he cannot pay and must work out with several months on the treadmill and if nothing can be proved against him he is sent to the treadmill none the less as a rogue and a vagabond quote. the partisanship of the justices of the peace especially in the country surpasses all description and it is so much the order of the day that all cases which are not too utterly flagrant are quietly reported by the newspapers without comment nor is anything else to be expected. For on the one hand these dogberries do merely construe the law according to the intent of the farmers, and on the other they are themselves bourgeois who see the foundation of all true order in the interests of their class. And the conduct of the police corresponds to that of the justices of the peace. The bourgeois may do what he will, and the police remain ever polite, adhering strictly to the law, but the proletarian is roughly, brutally treated. His poverty both casts the suspicion of every sort of crime upon him, and cuts him off from legal redress against any caprice of the administrators of the law. For him, therefore, the protecting forms of the law do not exist. The police force their way into his house without further ceremony, arrest and abuse him, and only when a men's association, such as the miners, engages a Roberts, does it become evident how little the protective side of the law exists for the working men? how frequently he has to bear all the burdens of the law without enjoying its benefits down to the present hour the property-holding class in parliament still struggles against the better feelings of those not yet fallen a prey to egotism and seeks to subjugate the proletariat still further One piece of common land after another is appropriated and placed under cultivation, a process by which the general cultivation is furthered, but the proletariat greatly injured. Where there were still commons, the poor could pasture an ass, a pig, or geese. The children and young people had a place where they could play and live out of doors. But this is gradually coming to an end. The earnings of the worker are less, and the young people, deprived of their playground, go to the beer-shops. A mass of acts for enclosing and cultivating commons is passed at every session of Parliament. When the government determined during the session of eighteen forty four to force all the monopolizing railways to make travelling possible for the workers by means of charges proportionate to their means, a penny a mile, and proposed therefore to introduce such a third-class train upon every railway daily, the Reverend Father in God, the Bishop of London, proposed that Sunday, the only day upon which workingmen in work can travel, be exempted from this rule, and travelling thus be left open to the rich and shut off from the poor. This proposition was, however, too direct, too undisguised to pass through Parliament, and was dropped. I have no room to enumerate the many concealed attacks of even one single session upon the proletariat one from the session of 1844 must suffice. An obscure member of Parliament, a Mr. Miles, proposed a bill regulating the relation of master and servant which seemed comparatively unobjectionable. The government became interested in the bill, and it was referred to a committee. Meanwhile the strike among the miners in the North broke out, and Roberts made his triumphal passage through England with his acquitted workingmen. When the bill was reported by the committee, it was discovered that certain most despotic provisions had been interpolated in it especially one conferring upon the employer the power to bring before any justice of the peace every working man who had contracted verbally or in writing to do any work whatsoever in case of refusal to work or other misbehaviour and have him condemned to prison with hard labour for two months upon the oath of the employer or his agent or overlooker that is, upon the oath of the accuser. This bill aroused the workingmen to the utmost fury, the more so as the Ten Hours Bill was before Parliament at the same time, and had called forth a considerable agitation. Hundreds of meetings were held, hundreds of workingmen's petitions forwarded to London to Thomas Duncombe, the representative of the interests of the proletariat. This man was, except Ferrand, the representative of quote, unquote, young england the only vigorous opponent of the bill but when the other radicals saw that the people were declaring against it one after the other crept forward and took his place by duncombe's side and as the liberal bourgeoisie had not the courage to defend the bill in the face of the excitement among the working-men it was ignominiously lost meanwhile the most open declaration of war of the bourgeoisie upon the proletariat is Malthus's law of population and the new poor law framed in accordance with it. We have already alluded several times to the theory of Malthus. We may sum up its final result in these few words that the earth is perennially overpopulated, whence poverty, misery, distress, and immorality must prevail, that it is the lot, the eternal destiny of mankind to exist in too great numbers, and therefore in diverse classes, of which some are rich, educated, and moral, and others more or less poor, distressed, ignorant, and immoral. Hence it follows in practice, and Malthus himself drew this conclusion, that charities and poor rates are, property speaking, nonsense, since they serve only to maintain and stimulate the increase of the surplus population, whose competition crushes down wages for the employed that the employment of the poor by the poor-law guardians is equally unreasonable, since only a fixed quantity of the products of labour can be consumed, and for every unemployed labourer thus furnished employment, another hitherto employed must be driven into enforced idleness, whence private undertakings suffer at cost of poor-law industry. That in other words, the whole problem is not how to support the surplus population, but how to restrain it as far as possible. Malthus declares in plain English that the right to live, a right previously asserted in favor of every man in the world, is nonsense. He quotes the words of a poet, that the poor man comes to the feast of nature and finds no cover laid for him, and adds that, quote, she bids him be gone, end quote, for he did not before his birth ask of society whether or not he is welcome. This is now the pet theory of all genuine English bourgeois very naturally, since it is the most specious excuse for them, and has moreover a good deal of truth in it under existing conditions. If then the problem is not to make the surplus population useful, to transform it into available population, but merely to let it starve to death in the least objectionable way, and to prevent its having too many children, this of course is simple enough, provided the surplus population perceives its own superfluousness, and takes kindly to starvation there is however in spite of the violent exertions of the humane bourgeoisie no immediate prospect of its succeeding in bringing about such a disposition among the workers the workers have taken it into their heads that they with their busy hands are the necessary and the rich capitalists who do nothing the surplus population since however the rich hold all the power the proletarians must submit if they will not good-temperedly perceive it for themselves, to have the law actually declare them superfluous. This has been done by the new poor-law. The old poor-law, which rested upon the Act of 1601, the 43rd of Elizabeth, naively started from the notion that it is the duty of the parish to provide for the maintenance of the poor. Whoever had no work received relief, and the poor man regarded the parish as pledged to protect him from starvation. He demanded his weekly relief as his right, not as a favor, and this became at last too much for the bourgeoisie. In 1833, when the bourgeoisie had just come into power through the reform bill, and pauperism in the country districts had just reached its full development, the bourgeoisie began the reform of the poor law, according to its own point of view. A commission was appointed which investigated the administration of the poor laws, and revealed a multitude of abuses. It was discovered that the whole working class in the country was pauperized, and more or less dependent upon the rates from which they received relief when wages were low. It was found that this system by which the unemployed were maintained, the ill-paid and the parents of large families relieved, fathers of illegitimate children required to pay alimony, and poverty in general recognized as needing protection, it was found that this system was ruining the nation was quote, a check upon industry, a reward for improvident marriage, a stimulus to increased population, and a means of counterbalancing the effect of an increased population upon wages, a national provision for discouraging the honest and industrious and protecting the lazy, vicious, and improvident calculated to destroy the bonds of family life, hinder systematically the accumulation of capital scatter that which is already accumulated, and ruin the taxpayers. Moreover, in the provision of aliment, it sets a premium upon illegitimate children. Words of the Report of the Poor Law Commissioners. This description of the action of the old poor law is certainly correct. Relief fosters laziness and increase of surplus population under present social conditions it is perfectly clear that the poor man is compelled to be an egotist and when he can choose living equally well in either case he prefers doing nothing to working but what follows therefrom that our present social conditions are good for nothing and not as the malthusian commissioners conclude that poverty is a crime and as such to be visited with heinous penalties which may serve as a warning to others but these wise malthusians were so thoroughly convinced of the infallibility of their theory that they did not for one moment hesitate to cast the poor into the procrustean bed of their economic notions and treat them with the most revolting cruelty convinced with malthus and the rest of the adherents of free competition that it is best to let each one take care of himself they would have preferred to abolish the poor laws altogether Since, however, they had neither the courage nor the authority to do this, they proposed a poor law constructed as far as possible in harmony with the doctrine of Malthus, which is yet more barbarous than that of laissez-faire, because it interferes actively in cases in which the latter is passive. We have seen how Malthus characterizes poverty, or rather the want of employment, as a crime under the title superfluity, and recommends for it punishment by starvation. The commissioners were not quite so barbarous. Death outright by starvation was something too terrible even for a poor law commissioner. Good, said they, we grant you poor a right to exist, but only to exist. The right to multiply you have not, nor the right to exist as befits human beings. You are a pest, and if we cannot get rid of you as we do of other pests, you shall feel at least that you are a pest, and you shall at least be held in check kept from bringing into the world other surplus, either directly or through inducing another's laziness and want of employment, live you shall, but live as an awful warning to all those who might have inducements to become superfluous, They accordingly brought in the new poor law, which was passed by Parliament in 1834, and continues in force down to the present day. All relief in money and provisions was abolished, the only relief allowed was admission to the workhouses immediately built the regulations for these workhouses or as the people call them poor-law bastilles, is such as to frighten away every one who has the slightest prospect of life without this form of public charity to make sure that relief be applied for only in the most extreme cases and after every other effort had failed the workhouse has been made the most repulsive residence which the refined ingenuity of a Malthusian can invent. The food is worse than that of the most ill-paid working man while employed, and the work harder, or they might prefer the workhouse to their wretched existence outside. Meat, especially fresh meat, is rarely furnished, chiefly potatoes, the worst possible bread and oatmeal porridge, little or no beer. The food of criminal prisoners is better, as a rule, so that the paupers frequently commit some offence for the purpose of getting into jail. For the workhouse is a jail, too. He who does not finish his task gets nothing to eat. He who wishes to go out must ask permission, which is granted or not, according to his behaviour or the inspector's whim. Tobacco is forbidden. Also the receipt of gifts from relatives or friends outside the house. The paupers wear a workhouse uniform, and are handed over, helpless and without redress, to the caprice of the inspectors. To prevent their labour from competing with that of outside concerns, they are set to rather useless tasks. The men break stones, quote, as much as a strong man can accomplish with effort in a day, end quote. The women, children, and aged men pick oakum, for I know not what insignificant use to prevent the superfluous from multiplying and demoralized parents from influencing their children families are broken up the husband is placed in one wing the wife in another the children in a third and they are permitted to see one another only at stated times after long intervals and then only when they have in the opinion of the officials behaved well and in order to shut off the external world from contamination by pauperism within these bastilles the inmates are permitted to receive visits only with the consent of the officials and in the reception-rooms to communicate in general with the world outside only by leave and under supervision yet the food is supposed to be wholesome and the treatment humane with all this but the intent of the law is too loudly outspoken for this requirement to be in any wise fulfilled the poor law commissioners and the whole english bourgeoisie deceive themselves if they believe the administration of the law possible without these results the treatment which the letter of the law prescribes is in direct contradiction of its spirit if the law in its essence proclaims the poor criminals the workhouses prisons their inmates beyond the pale of the law beyond the pale of humanity objects of disgust and repulsion then all commands to the contrary are unavailing in practice the spirit and not the letter of the law is followed in the treatment of the poor as in the following few examples in the workhouse at greenwich in the summer of eighteen forty three a boy five years old was punished by being shut into the dead-room where he had to sleep upon the lids of the coffins in the workhouse at hearne the same punishment was inflicted upon a little girl for wetting the bed at night and this method of punishment seems to be a favourite one this workhouse which stands in one of the most beautiful regions of Kent, is peculiar in so far as its windows open only upon the court, and but two, newly introduced, afford the inmates a glimpse of the outer world. The author who relates this in the illuminated magazine closes his description with the words, If God punished men for crimes, as man punishes man for poverty, then woe to the sons of Adam in november eighteen forty three a man died at leicester who had been dismissed two days before from the workhouse at coventry the details of the treatment of the poor in this institution are revolting the man george robson had a wound upon the shoulder the treatment of which was wholly neglected he was set to work at the pump using the sound arm was given only the usual workhouse fare which he was utterly unable to digest by reason of the unhealed wound and his general debility he naturally grew weaker and the more he complained the more brutally he was treated when his wife tried to bring him her drop of beer she was reprimanded and forced to drink it herself in the presence of the female warder he became ill but received no better treatment finally at his own request and under the most insulting epithets he was discharged, accompanied by his wife. Two days later he died at Leicester in consequence of the neglected wound and of the food given him, which was utterly indigestible for one in his condition, as the surgeon present at the inquest testified. When he was discharged there were handed to him letters containing money, which had been kept back six weeks, and opened according to a rule of the establishment by the inspector. In Birmingham such scandalous occurrences took place that finally, in 1843, an official was sent to investigate the case. He found that four tramps had been shut up, naked, under a staircase in a black hole, eight to ten days, often deprived of food until noon, and that at the severest season of the year. A little boy had been passed through all grades of punishment known to the institution, first locked up in a damp, vaulted, narrow lumber-room then in the dog-hole twice, the second time three days and three nights, then the same length of time in the old dog-hole, which was still worse, then the tramp-room, a stinking, disgustingly filthy hole, with wooden sleeping-stalls, where the official, in the course of his inspection, found two other tattered boys, shriveled with cold, who had been spending three days there. In the dog-hole there were often seven— and in the tramp room twenty men huddled together women also were placed in the dog-hole because they refused to go to church and one was shut four days into the tramp room with god knows what sort of company and that while she was ill and receiving medicine another woman was placed in the insane department for punishment though she was perfectly sane in the workhouse at Bacton in Suffolk in january eighteen forty four a similar investigation revealed the fact that a feeble-minded woman was employed as nurse and took care of the patients accordingly while sufferers who were often restless at night or tried to get up were tied fast with cords passed over the covering and under the bedstead to save the nurses the trouble of sitting up at night one patient was found dead bound in this way in the st pancras workhouse in london where the cheap shirts already mentioned are made An epileptic died of suffocation during an attack in bed, no one coming to his relief. In the same house, four to six, sometimes eight children, slept in one bed. In Shoreditch workhouse, a man was placed, together with a fever patient, violently ill, in a bed teeming with vermin. In Bethnal Green workhouse, London, a woman in the sixth month of pregnancy was shut up in the reception room with her two-year-old child from February 28th to March 20th, without being admitted into the workhouse itself, and without a trace of a bed or the means of satisfying the most natural wants. Her husband, who was brought into the workhouse, begged to have his wife released from this imprisonment, whereupon he received twenty-four hours' imprisonment, with bread and water, as the penalty of his insolence. In the workhouse at Slough, near Windsor, a man lay dying in September 1844, His wife journeyed to him, arriving at midnight, and hastening to the workhouse, was refused admission. She was not permitted to see her husband until the next morning, and then only in the presence of a female warder, who forced herself upon the wife at every succeeding visit, sending her away at the end of half an hour. In the workhouse at Middleton, in Lancashire, twelve and at times eighteen paupers of both sexes slept in one room this institution is not embraced by the new poor law but is administered under an old special act gilbert's act the inspector had instituted a brewery in the house for his own benefit in stockport july thirty first eighteen forty four a man seventy-two years old was brought before the justice of the peace for refusing to break stones and insisting that by reason of his age and a stiff knee he was unfit for his work in vain did he offer to undertake any work adapted to his physical strength. He was sentenced to two weeks upon the treadmill. In the workhouse at Basford, an inspecting official found that the sheets had not been changed in thirteen weeks, shirts in four weeks, stockings in two to ten months, so that of forty-five boys, but three had stockings, and all their shirts were in tatters. The beds swarmed with vermin, and the tableware was washed in the slop-pails in the west of london workhouse a porter who had infected four girls with syphilis was not discharged and another who had concealed a deaf and dumb girl four days and nights in his bed was also retained as in life so in death the poor are dumped into the earth like infected cattle the pauper burial-ground of st bride's london is a bare morass in use as a cemetery since the time of charles the second and filled with heaps of bones Every Wednesday the paupers are thrown into a ditch fourteen feet deep. A curate rattles through the litany at the top of his speed. The ditch is loosely covered in, to be reopened the next Wednesday, and filled with corpses as long as one more can be forced in. The putrefaction thus engendered contaminates the whole neighbourhood. In Manchester the pauper burial ground lies opposite to the old town, along the Irk, this too is a rough desolate place about two years ago a railroad was carried through it if it had been a respectable cemetery how the bourgeoisie and the clergy would have shrieked over the desecration but it was a pauper burial ground the resting place of the outcast and superfluous so no one concerned himself about the matter it was not even thought worth while to convey the partially decayed bodies to the other side of the cemetery they were heaped up just as it happened, and piles were driven into newly made graves, so that the water oozed out of the swampy ground, pregnant with putrefying matter, and filled the neighbourhood with the most revolting and injurious gases. The disgusting brutality which accompanied this work I cannot describe in further detail. Can any one wonder that the poor declined to accept public relief under these conditions? that they starve rather than enter these bastilles. I have the reports of five cases in which persons actually starving, when the guardians refused them outdoor relief, went back to their miserable homes and died of starvation rather than enter these hells. Thus far have the poor law commissioners attained their object. At the same time, however, the workhouses have intensified, more than any other measure of the party in power, the hatred of the working-class against the property-holders, who very generally admire the new poor-law. From Newcastle to Dover there is but one voice among the workers, the voice of hatred against the new law. The bourgeoisie has formulated so clearly in this law its conception of its duties towards the proletariat that it has been appreciated even by the dullest. So frankly, so boldly, had the conception never yet been formulated, that the non-possessing class exists solely for the purpose of being exploited and of starving when the property-holders can no longer make use of it hence it is that this new poor law has contributed so greatly to accelerate the labour movement and especially to spread chartism and as it is carried out most extensively in the country it facilitates the development of the proletarian movement which is arising in the agricultural districts let me add that a similar law in force in ireland since eighteen thirty eight affords a similar refuge for eighty thousand paupers here too it has made itself disliked and would have been intensely hated if it had attained anything like the same importance as in england but what difference does the ill-treatment of eighty thousand proletarians make in a country in which there are two and a half millions of them in scotland there are with local exceptions no poor laws I hope that after this picture of the new poor law and its results, no word which I have said of the English bourgeoisie will be thought too stern. In this public measure, in which it acts incorpore as the ruling power, it formulates its real intentions, reveals the animus of those smaller transactions with the proletariat, of which the blame apparently attaches to individuals. And that this measure did not originate with any one section of the bourgeoisie, but enjoys the approval of the whole class is proved by the parliamentary debates of eighteen forty four the liberal party had enacted the new poor law the conservative party with its prime minister peel at the head defends it and only alters some pettifogging trifles in the poor law amendment bill of eighteen forty four a liberal majority carried the bill a conservative majority approved it and the noble lords gave their consent each time Thus is the expulsion of the proletariat from state and society outspoken. Thus is it publicly proclaimed that proletarians are not human beings, and do not deserve to be treated as such. Let us leave it to the proletarians of the British Empire to reconquer their human rights. Such is the state of the British working class as I have come to know it in the course of twenty-one months, through the medium of my own eyes, and through official and other trustworthy reports and when I call this condition, as I have frequently enough done in the foregoing pages, an utterly unbearable one, I am not alone in so doing. As early as 1833 Gaskell declared that he despaired of a peaceful issue, and that a revolution can hardly fail to follow. In 1838 Carlyle explained chartism and the revolutionary activity of the workingmen as arising out of the misery in which they live, and only wondered that they have sat so quietly eight long years at the barmecide feast, at which they have been regaled by the liberal bourgeoisie with empty promises. And in 1844 he declared that the work of organizing labor must be begun at once, quote, if Europe, or at least England, is long to remain inhabitable, end quote. And the Times, the quote-unquote First Journal of Europe, said in June eighteen forty four war to palaces peace unto cabins that is a battle-cry of terror which may come to resound throughout our country let the wealthy beware meanwhile let us review once more the chances of the english bourgeoisie in the worst case foreign manufacture especially that of america may succeed in withstanding English competition, even after the repeal of the Corn Laws, inevitable in the course of a few years. German manufacture is now making great strides, and that of America has developed with giant strides. America, with its inexhaustible resources, with its unmeasured coal and iron fields, with its unexampled wealth of water-power and its navigable rivers, but especially with its energetic, active population, in comparison with which the english are phlegmatic dawdlers, america has in less than ten years created a manufacture which already competes with england in the coarser cotton goods has excluded the english from the markets of north and south america and holds its own in china side by side with england if any country is adapted to holding a monopoly of manufacture it is america should english manufacture be thus vanquished and in the course of the next twenty years if the present conditions remain unchanged this is inevitable the majority of the proletariat must become forever superfluous and has no other choice than to starve or to rebel does the english bourgeoisie reflect upon this contingency on the contrary its favorite economist mccullough teaches from his students desk that a country so young as america which is not even properly populated cannot carry on manufacture successfully or dream of competing with an old manufacturing country like england it were madness in the americans to make the attempt for they could only lose by it better far for them to stick to their agriculture and when they have brought their whole territory under the plough the time may perhaps come for carrying on manufacture with a profit so says the wise economist and the whole bourgeoisie worships him while the Americans take possession of one market after another, while a daring American speculator recently even sent a shipment of American cotton goods to England, where they were sold for re-exportation. But assuming that England retained the monopoly of manufactures, that its factories perpetually multiply, what must be the result? The commercial crises would continue and grow more violent, more terrible, with the extension of industry and the multiplication of the proletariat. The proletariat would increase in geometrical proportion, in consequence of the progressive ruin of the lower middle class, and the giant strides with which capital is concentrating itself in the hands of the few. And the proletariat would soon embrace the whole nation, with the exception of a few millionaires. But in this development there comes a stage at which the proletariat perceives how easily the existing power may be overthrown, and then follows a revolution. Neither of these supposed conditions may, however, be expected to arise. The commercial crises, the mightiest levers for all independent development of the proletariat, will probably shorten the process, acting in concert with foreign competition and the deepening ruin of the lower middle class. I think the people will not endure more than one more crisis. The next one, in 1846 or 1847, will probably bring with it the repeal of the Corn Laws and the enactment of the Charter. What revolutionary movements the Charter may give rise to remains to be seen. But by the time of the next following crisis, which according to the analogy of its predecessors must break out in 1852 or 1853, unless delayed perhaps by the repeal of the corn laws or hastened by other influences such as foreign competition by the time this crisis arrives the english people will have had enough of being plundered by the capitalists and left to starve when the capitalists no longer require their services if up to that time the english bourgeoisie does not pause to reflect and to all appearance it certainly will not do so a revolution will follow with which none hitherto known can be compared the proletarians driven to despair will seize the torch which stevens has preached to them the vengeance of the people will come down with a wrath of which the rage of seventeen ninety three gives no true idea the war of the poor against the rich will be the bloodiest ever waged even the union of a part of the bourgeoisie with the proletariat even a general reform of the bourgeoisie would not help matters. Besides, the change of heart of the bourgeoisie could only go as far as a lukewarm juste milieu. The more determined, uniting with the workers, would only form a new gironde and succumb in the course of the mighty development. The prejudices of a whole class cannot be laid aside like an old coat. Least of all those of the stable, narrow, selfish English bourgeoisie, these are all inferences which may be drawn with the greatest certainty conclusions the premises for which are undeniable facts partly of historical development partly facts inherent in human nature prophecy is nowhere so easy as in england where all the component elements of society are clearly defined and sharply separated the revolution must come it is already too late to bring about a peaceful solution but it can be made more gentle than that prophesied in the foregoing pages this depends however more upon the development of the proletariat than upon that of the bourgeoisie in proportion as the proletariat absorbs socialistic and communistic elements will the revolution diminish in bloodshed revenge and savagery communism stands in principle above the breach between bourgeoisie and proletariat recognizes only its historic significance for the present but not its justification for the future wishes indeed to bridge over this chasm to do away with all class antagonisms hence it recognizes as justified so long as the struggle exists the exasperation of the proletariat towards its oppressors as a necessity as the most important lever for a labor movement just beginning but it goes beyond this exasperation, because communism is a question of humanity and not of the workers alone. Besides, it does not occur to any communist to wish to revenge himself upon individuals, or to believe that, in general, the single bourgeois can act otherwise under existing circumstances than he does act. English socialism, that is communism, rests directly upon the irresponsibility of the individual. Thus, the more the English workers absorb communistic ideas, the more superfluous becomes their present bitterness, which, should it continue so violent as at present, could accomplish nothing, and the more their action against the bourgeoisie will lose its savage cruelty. If, indeed, it were possible to make the whole proletariat communistic before the war breaks out, the end would be very peaceful. But that is no longer possible. The time has gone by." Meanwhile, I think that before the outbreak of open, declared war of the poor against the rich, there will be enough intelligent comprehension of the social question among the proletariat to enable the communistic party, with the help of events, to conquer the brutal element of the revolution and prevent a ninth Thermidor. In any case, the experience of the French will not have been undergone in vain, and most of the Chartist leaders are, moreover, already communists and as Communism stands above the strife between bourgeoisie and proletariat, it will be easier for the better elements of the bourgeoisie, which are, however, deplorably few, and can look for recruits only among the rising generation, to unite with it than with purely proletarian chartism. If these conclusions have not been sufficiently established in the course of the present work, There may be other opportunities for demonstrating that they are necessary consequences of the historical development of England. But this I maintain. The war of the poor against the rich, now carried on in detail and indirectly, will become direct and universal. It is too late for a peaceful solution. The classes are divided more and more sharply. The spirit of resistance penetrates the workers. The bitterness intensifies the guerrilla skirmishes become concentrated in more important battles and soon a slight impulse will suffice to set the avalanche in motion then indeed will the war cry resound through the land quote, "war to the palaces peace to the cottages" end quote. but then it will be too late for the rich to beware end of chapter 11 End of the Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 by Friedrich Engels Recording by Kathy Barrett